Your business is an asset that can support a thriving life. I believe this, and I'm committed to making this a reality for every entrepreneur and business owner who listens to this podcast. The Women Thriving in Business podcast was created with you in mind. Whether you're thinking about entrepreneurship or you've been in business for a while, this show has inspiration, information, and advice that you can use to thrive in business. Women Thriving in Business features candid and unscripted conversations with entrepreneurs, business experts, authors, and academics who can contribute to your business success. I talk with leaders who have built thriving organizations and who are willing to share both the positive and challenging realities of the entrepreneurial journey. My name is Nikki Rogers. I am a transformation strategist and the host of the Women Thriving in Business podcast. I work with women leaders to develop the mindset, strategies, and relationships necessary to thrive in business. Join me and your fellow thrivers each week on this journey of discovery and success. Welcome thrivers to this week's episode of Women Thriving in Business podcast. My guest today is Celeste Warren, who is a global executive in diversity and inclusion and who is the author of How to Be a Diversity and Inclusion Ambassador, Everyone's Role in Helping All Feel Accepted, Engaged, and Valued. Welcome, Celeste. Well, thank you, Nikki. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Well, I'm excited to just chat with you and learn more about your journey and your role as a diversity and inclusion, I would say sponsor, champion, cheerleader, all those things. And as an executive in that role, I know that is a heavy role, much needed role, and you've been successful in this. But before we get into all that, Celeste, tell us a bit about yourself and what got you started on this path around leading diversity and inclusion within large corporations. Well, Nikki, it was a winding journey, but I'd say it started, you know, just as a child. My father was the first Black teacher, first Black principal in Western Pennsylvania, in that area. And so I had a first row seat on seeing things evolve and change and through the eyes of my parents. At the dinner table, my dad would talk about his day and what it was like, some of the challenges that he faced. And being the first and how he overcame them. And my mom would sit there and she would support him tirelessly. And so it started kind of there, just hearing my parents talking at the table. And then as I got older and started working, started to really understand how it was ingrained in me from just a child and being able to look at the roles I was in through a lens of diversity and inclusion and equity and really fight to make sure that processes, policies, procedures, and also behaviors that they were embodying what we wanted to make sure that we had in place when it came to diversity, equity, inclusion. So it's never gone away. And it's very interesting how I got into this role because I'm so passionate about this. Whenever it was discussed about, from a succession plan standpoint, about me taking on this role, I would always just say, no, 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 take my name off that list. I don't want to do that because I'm very passionate about it. And I wanted to make sure that 
if I went into this role thinking about the whole organization, would I have the support that I needed in order for not just me to be successful, but for the organization to get to where it needed to be? And I just didn't know. And so I always kind of just said, no, that, that's not of interest to me. Until my boss at the time, the chief HR officer, she had a discussion with me and she said, look, I know how you feel about this and this role, but we haven't seen the progress that we wanted to see. And we just really want to see a change. And she said, it was Ken Frazier, who was the CEO at the time. And I really, really think that you're the right person for this role. I thought to myself, oh, well, here's an out because he's the CEO. He's really busy. He's not going to be able to see me for two months. And so I can backpedal and just work my way out of this. (laughs) And I said, sure, I'll talk to Ken. You know, no problem. And she said, great. She grabbed my hand and she walked me over to his office. (laughs) And so I was like, okay. We had the conversation and needless to say, he's a very charismatic leader and someone who is very passionate about DE&I. I took the job and here we are. Next year, I'll be going into my ninth year in this role. Wow. You were in an HR role within your organization. Can you talk a bit about how the ideas around diversity and inclusion or even the sentiment around diversity and inclusion changed over the time, maybe when you first came into the organization or when you were in HR and other organizations until the time at which you felt like, okay, I'm really passionate about this and I want to take this senior leadership role and solidify this for the company. But can you talk to us a bit about the journey that got you there? And how not only you evolved as a leader, but even how diversity and inclusion has evolved over time. Or like I said, the sentiment and the strategy around it has evolved over time. Yeah, you know, it has gone from when I first started working 30 years ago, it was all about EEO compliance. It was very U.S. focused. It was about, I call it butts and seats. How many women do you have? How many persons of color do you have? Etc. And I'm not saying that we've overcome in that area when it comes to representation, because we haven't. It's still something that most organizations still struggle in and making sure that they are driving change as far as the foundational element of having a diverse workforce. It's evolved from the standpoint and where I like to take it is it's still very much a part of the foundational element of making sure that you have a diverse workforce, but it also evolves to How are you surrounding that workforce with a culture of inclusion, of belonging, engagement, and empowerment so they can do the work that you need them to be doing as their true authentic selves? And then also making sure that you're integrating it into the business. So you want to make sure that you're weaving it into your commercialization strategies, your marketing strategies, your various different strategies across your organization to meet the needs of your customers and all of your customers, those that are underrepresented as well. And then the last piece is you got to do the things that you need to be doing within the four walls of your organization, but you got to also stick your head up off of the grindstone, look up and say, what obligation do we have and responsibility do we have as an organization externally? What do we need to be doing to make sure that we're fulfilling the obligation of driving change in the business landscape, across the globe, in those kind of areas. And I like to say our people, our culture, our business, and our world, and making sure that we're looking at 
DE&I holistically and looking at it from the perspective of not just myopically and thinking just about representation, but thinking about it holistically across the alpha to omega of the organization. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think those four pillars are key, right? Um, I think a lot of organizations focus on that representation piece. The good ones focus on culture a bit, right? So if you think about the maturity of an organization within this realm, I think a lot gets stuck at that first and second level. I love how you're expanding it out to the business and to the world. And all four of those really have to work in concert in order to create the organization that you want. As you think about your time in DEI, even your time within your organization right now, what is the ultimate outcome that organizations should be looking to achieve through their DEI efforts? I would say the ultimate outcome, you want to have an organization where it is integrated into the fabric of the organization, into the DNA of the organization. And so you have to look at your policies, your procedures, your practices, because sometimes you might have the policies and the procedures, but if the managers and the leaders aren't actively practicing it with their employees, the policy is not even as good as the paper that it's written on. Making sure that from that perspective, that it's integrated into that and it permeates through that, but also through the behaviors and the mindsets of the people as well. As a business leader, if I am building my skills and my capabilities around diversity, equity, and inclusion as a leader, I'm creating a more inclusive and psychologically safe environment because of the shadow of the leader. I'm also making sure that my managers on the management teams, that they understand what my expectations are as a leader when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion. That's really, really important. Creating an environment where the employees feel valued and want to be a part of the organization and a part of the organization's success. So that's really important. And then when you do that, you build the DNI capabilities within the organization and within the people, the natural sort of ripple effect is they'll take that capability into their functional skills and capabilities. So into the business, to the strategy table, into the conference rooms, into the boardrooms. And as an example, if I'm a marketing leader and whatever it is I'm making or strategizing and putting the strategy together for whatever it is that we want to sell, I need to make sure that I understand the customers and all of the customers across all of the demographics. A marketer today, if they don't have that DE&I capability and understand what's getting in the way of the various different customers across all the dimensions of diversity and how they identify, what are those obstacles and barriers that are getting into the way of our product being able to meet the needs of the customer? And in order to do that, you can't just interpret what you think the people in that community are going to need. You have to have people from that community sitting at the table with you as you're developing the strategy. So how neat is it? You talk about being able to bring your authentic self to work. If I'm on a marketing team, I have my functional skills and capabilities as a marketer, but I'm also able to bring my cultural experiences to the table as well and talk about why something may or may not work in my case, in the Black community, and being able to share that at the table as we're developing the marketing strategy. You talk about feeling valued within the workplace, just takes it to a new level. 
years ago, we used to talk about, we want people to bring their authentic selves to work. We heard that a lot, right? And people interpreted that as the come as you are, the casual flip-flops, or Mm -hmm. I want to wear whatever I want to wear, and I want my hair to look however I want to look. That's kind of how we talk about it today. But it's not just about that. It's not just the external viewpoint and how you look cosmetically, but it's also the essence of who you are and the essence of your culture and your experience, your lived experience, bringing that to the workplace as well and seeing how it's contributing to driving the business. And that to me is nirvana. That's what you want every employee to feel that way when they come into the workplace. Mm-hmm. You want employees to have that feeling as they walk into the workplace. You just talked about that kind of bringing your authentic self to work. There's still a culture of that business, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you help people reconcile when there might be a gap between your authentic self and the culture? How do you navigate that as an individual? And then how does the organization navigate that where they want to create a welcoming space, but yet there is a culture, right? Mm -hmm. That may bump up against some of those things. Yeah, we have this conversation a lot, especially when I'm traveling and talking in different forums. You have to ask yourself the question. There are three circles. If you think of as three circles, there's the organizational needs. What is the organizational culture? What are their needs? What do they need from a skills and capability standpoint, functionally? And then there's the employee skills and capabilities. What is it that you bring to the table from the standpoint of, you know, are you an engineer, a scientist, whatever? And then the circle, that's your passions, your embodiment of who you are, the essence of who you are as a person, your culture, your experiences, how you identify all of that, your passions of what makes you tick. There's that circle. I call it the employment sweet spot. But you want those three circles to overlap. They'll never overlap completely where it's like a funnel, but you want the circles to overlap. And where it overlaps, I call that the employment sweet spot. And you want to try as best you can when you're thinking about as a potential employee, as a candidate, or as an employee who's in an organization, of looking at the organization in that way and saying, you know, asking yourself, am I in my employment sweet spot? Or are my circles overlapping to a degree where it's nice for me, it's comfortable for me? That's where you feel valued and you feel that you belong and you feel there's a psychological safety as well. And if those circles are not overlapping, then you have to ask yourself, is this the organization for me? Mm. Because it's too hard in this day and age to be in an organization that doesn't have the same values, beliefs, ideals, and standards that you have as an individual. And we see that more and more now, Generation Y, Generation Z, in the workplace and coming into the workplace, they're a large percentage of the labor market now globally. And one thing that is true of these two generations is they have individual values and standards that they hold very dear. And they're not going to go to an organization or stay in an organization that doesn't have the same values that they have. And so as organizations, we really need to understand that it's not how it was in previous generations where I'm going to go to the organization and I'm going to assimilate to the culture in the organization. Generation Y and Z are like, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> that's not happening, you know. And so organizations, they have to understand that. 
and say, okay, how are we looking at the organizational culture where we can respect the tradition of the culture, what we're about as an organization and what our mission statement, our vision, et cetera. But how do we make sure that we're able to bring in the workforce of the future and the workforce of today where the three circles can overlap? Because it's not just a win-win for the employee. It's a win-win for the employer as well. Because there's lots of money. When you talk about turnover and having had to replace employees, that's a huge amount of money that you just don't want to see. Right. I can imagine that as you're talking about this at a large scale, right, you encounter resistance. Mm -hmm. You encounter Mm -hmm. folks who are like, that doesn't apply to me. How do you address resistance around DEI topics and cultural shifts? How do you address that resistance and how do you help people understand that this actually impacts everyone? Yeah, it's very interesting. You're absolutely right. The headwinds can be strong, especially externally, you know, from a political standpoint, we see what's happening with the different rulings and laws and just different things that are happening, just even attacking voting rights from that perspective. But our organizations are simply microcosms of the different ideas and beliefs that exist globally. We're just microcosms of it. And so Organizations would be very foolish to think that people are talking about religion and politics and things in the workplace because they are. And it's not just happening in the stairwells or in the cafeteria at tables, lunch with like-minded people. It's happening in the offices, in the conference rooms, in the boardrooms. These conversations are happening. And what I try to tell, especially leaders and managers, is You can't stop the employee awakening that's happening. It's already happened. You're not going to be able to stop it. It's sort of like standing in front of a huge ball that's rolling downhill and getting larger and larger, that snowball, and standing in the way and thinking you are going to be able to stop it. You're not going to be able to stop it. That's just the way of the world now. And so as a leader, you have to make sure that you understand what is happening from a cultural standpoint, from a social standpoint, from a political standpoint externally and the impact that it's having on certain communities of employees within the workplace. And if you don't understand that, then you talk about the war for talent. You're not going to be able to thrive. You're not even going to be able to survive in this day and age because you have to understand it. What's happening is the work that we're doing in equity and creating an equitable environment as we work to tear down the structural isms, racism, sexism, all of those things that are just institutionalized and systemic within organizations. While we do that work, at the same time that we're doing that, we have to put programs and things in place, those programs of equity. So like women's leadership programs and employee resource groups and other types of developmental programs, making sure that you're looking at your hiring practices and making sure it's diverse and you're development processes, and all of these different acts of equity that we're putting in place, it's causing a disruption in our organizations. And many people are saying, well, wait a minute, why do you need to put these different leadership programs in place? And, you know, why do we need a women's leadership program? Why do we need employee resource groups? Why do we need these things? And the people that are asking those questions most of the time are those people that have always been in positions of power, in positions of privilege, They have not necessarily been the victims of the isms that exist in organizations. And so they've been able to not see the impact that it's had on women, on persons of color, persons with disabilities, 
those in the LGBTQ plus community, et cetera. They haven't been able to see it because they haven't been able to identify with the challenges that have manifested themselves. And so they're asking the questions now about this. These aren't career limiting questions anymore, especially since 2016 and the rise of nationalism and the Trump getting into the White House, all of those different things. People are elevating their voices regardless of what the content is. And so what we have to do in this space where we have those people, the naysayers and et cetera, is go and help them to understand that those isms exist. Help them to understand what it looks like and how it manifests itself to individuals who identify differently than they do. Help them to understand it and not just through education, awareness, et cetera, but also just dialogue and uncomfortable conversations, but they need to happen. And as we do that, it's not just to educate them, but we want to make them active allies as well and join in the battle and the fight that we're in to create that inclusive work environment. Because they think of it as a pie, and it's not a pie. It's not, okay, well, if you get three slices of the pie, you're taking three slices from me. And we have to help them to kind of think of it as a bar chart where the bars are, go up infinitely, right? And there's so many opportunities. We have to get them to start thinking that way. And it's not a win-lose type situation. Everyone wins when we create that environment where everyone's going to succeed. Another example I give is in the disability space where when we think about our phones and Siri and talking with our phones, and that capability was created for individuals with disabilities who had visually impaired. Mm -hmm. And so they needed to have that capability. And now everybody has that capability. It's benefited everyone, you know, in all walks right. of life. And so people need to understand it and not be afraid of it and think that they're going to be losing power and embracing it. And, you know, it's going to take a while because you're talking about challenging closely held beliefs and ideas that when they were sitting at their dinner table when they were growing up, what dad said, what mom said, what grandpa said, what grandma said, and Uncle Harry and Aunt Susie. These are personal beliefs that some folks grew up with. They grew up in towns where they didn't see a lot of people who looked differently than they did. And so that environment just was an incubator for some of these beliefs. And so when they get into the workplace and they're all of a sudden surrounded by people who look different than they do, we have to be able to try to get them and grab them and move them forward and turn them into allies. Love that. What you're sharing is compassionate model. You have to understand where people come from, no matter whatever their walk of life. Everybody comes to the workplace from different spaces. As you said, with these deeply held beliefs that they were taught from childhood. And I think that goes no matter who you are and no matter how you were raised, right? There's yeah. just things that you're taught. And then when you get out into the real world, you're like, oh, that was my parents or grandparents or family experience. That's not necessarily the world that I'm walking into. Yes. And so I think a lot of this is around unlearning, but also establishing your own perspective. Mm -hmm. And add on top of that, the unconscious bias that all of us have, which is part of the fight or flight type thinking. But you add all of that together and it just makes up who we are. Now, there is the compassionate mode as well as the, there's that 5%, sometimes 10%, depending on the organization, of folks who they are belligerent with their beliefs. 
and not wanting to come on board and they just don't want to be a part of it. And I always tell people, you know, in, in any research around change management, then that's what you're talking about, organizational change management and methodology. They'll tell you, any research will tell you that there's a certain percentage that you're just not going to be able to bring on board. You're not going to be able to bring 100% of your people on board with any change that you try to implement. And so you try to get the dog to pull the tail, right? And that's kind of how I look at it. We make sure that we have the policies, the practices, the procedures in place that will make sure that people who have that different point of view, if it's not aligned to the companies, I always get leaders back to this place because they always say, oh, you know, I have people that are challenging our diversity and inclusion efforts and they're challenging this and challenging that. And I say, they can have different points of view, but I said, don't put it on you per se, but ground it in the fact that if your beliefs and values go against the company's beliefs and values around diversity, equity, inclusion, which are foundational for this company, if they go against that, maybe this isn't the company for you. It takes the personal out of it. Because sometimes leaders and managers, especially those of a diverse background, they'll have to be dealing with these situations and they're white knuckled grabbing the desk and wanting to just, you know, pounce. I said, take yourself out of it mm. and don't let them sort of reel you in and just have the conversation from the standpoint of these are the company standards. If you don't agree with the company standards, then maybe this isn't the company for you and leave it at that. Make the decision until the point, if you're the manager or leader, you might have to make the decision for them, depending on the behavior. Right. As you think about your time in corporate, what would you say has been one of your biggest challenges? I think it's the whole thing that I was talking about as far as the equity, because we have to put these acts of equity in place, these programs, these initiatives, these strategies in place, because we have to create that equity in the organization if we're going to get to true equality at the same time of doing the harder work of fighting the institutional challenges, those isms that exist, that's a longer time frame. And so we shouldn't have to make people wait until we do all of that strategic aspect of it, however long that takes. It didn't get there overnight. It's going to take longer than overnight to be able to sort it. But we have to put these acts of equity in place. And those are the quick hits, those strategies that you can get in place right away that are going to help to build those building blocks where everybody can have equal opportunity until we get to that place of equality, true equality. That's the challenge of that disruption, that tension that's in the organization today because we are not there yet. And with that being said, what would you name as one of your greatest accomplishments? Oh, gosh. When I first got in this job, I was doing a lot of traveling outside of the United States. And Whenever I would talk about diversity and inclusion in different countries, they would be like, oh, talk to the head. You know, it's like, that's a U.S. thing. We don't have those issues here. So I approached it in a different way. And I would have a conversation with them. I wouldn't mention the words diversity and inclusion, but I'd have a conversation talking about social, political, economic aspects, and then the haves and the have-nots in their country, whether that be classism, colorism, gender, whatever it may be. But I would talk about it, but not bring in the words diversity and inclusion because they really looked at those two words as a U.S. concept. And then at the end of this very robust conversation, I'd say something about diversity and inclusion. And they would be like, oh, oh, oh. and I'd say, well, you know, what do you think we've been talking about for the last hour? And they would go, 
Oh, really? And I said, yes, diversity is nothing but differences in people. And last I saw it when I was walking around London or filling the city, it was very, very diverse. Lots of different people, the way they look visibly and then other differences when I would sit down and hear them talking, et cetera. And so that exists. How do you bring that into the organization, leverage those differences to create a better organization? And so I would say one of the things that I'm proud of, fast forward eight years later, the growth that we have seen outside of the United States, in our regions, in our markets, has just been phenomenal. An example, our employee resource groups, when I first got in this job eight years ago, they were primarily in the United States. We had a few in Europe, a few in Latin America, Puerto Rico. Now we have grown exponentially globally with chapters of employee resource groups across. We have 10 employee resource groups, but we've grown up 280 chapters globally and a primarily large percentage of them are outside of the United States now. So it's been wonderful to see that because that was something that I really wanted to do and make sure that we were looking at it holistically across the people, culture, business and world, but also looking at it from a global perspective internally as well. I love that. What you said is most people think that this is a U.S. issue. I think it's more stark here, right? Very visible racial division or racial differences. Other countries are diverse as well, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what country you go to, there's different ethnic groups, there's different backgrounds, there's all these things. I think it gets couches, we're all one, right? But if you really dig into the culture, and I'm sure you saw this on your travels, if you really dig into it, there's a lot of differences. Very much so, very much so. It's just phenomenal. One of the things that we did, we started two years ago, we call it a DNI speaker leader series. We would get country leaders each month, feature a different country leader in a different country. And they would talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, how it manifested. So they give a little bit of the history of the country in that space. They talk about what that looks like today. And then they talk about within the organization, how it manifests itself and some of the things that they're doing. And I tell you, that has been wildly, wildly successful over these last two years because people want to hear about the different countries and what D&I looks like in that country. And one of the ones that was one of the largely attended was Brazil. And the statistics that he was talking about as far as next to Africa, it's the second largest population, people of African descent, even with the United States. And so people were like... I didn't know that, you know, the chat's just blowing up and everything. You learn a lot about it in the UK, Ireland. It's so funny because some people still think they must be under a rock or whatever, living under a rock, but they'll say, you know, in England or whatever, we don't have any issues with colorism or racism. And I'll say, yeah, ask Meghan Markle that. (laughs) It's all around. It's every country. Every country has the haves and have-nots. It's how you identify them in whatever way. And so having people embrace that to me was, it's just been very confirming of the work that we started out to do and where we are right now. Right. I love that. Well, now let's talk about your book. I see it behind you. You can hold it up so people can see the lovely cover. Um, Yes. see it. There we go. So talk to us a bit about the book, some of the lessons that you have in there, how you came to write the book, and what some of the key takeaways are. Nikki, I never thought that I would ever be 
series about writing a book. And the publisher, he reached out via email and he started in like end of 2018 and said, oh, Celeste, hi, I'm so-and-so, so-and-so. I'm from BK Publishers. And have you ever thought about writing a book and thought leader in this space? And and I was like, uh, no. <laughs> there were a couple of things that were going through my mind was who would care about what I have to say? No one would buy it. And my self-talk was just very, very negative. And so he said, well, you know, just think about it. And every maybe six, seven, eight months, he would send another email. And then the pandemic hit and we're all shuttered in place. And he emailed again. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And he said, you know, I just think this would be the right thing for you. I think it would be good. Well, what else do I have to do on a weekend or whatever? Can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. <laughs> Listening to my two kids who were home from college and from school argue. So they shepherded me through the process and we were thinking about, okay, what is it that you want to write about? And we kind of talked about it. And I said, you know, whenever I talk, whether it be internally or externally, inevitably, there's always someone who comes up to me afterwards and says, you know, Celeste, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not a leader. I'm not a people manager. I don't feel like I can really impact a change. What can I do? And mm -hmm. so after so many years and years of hearing that, I thought, you know what? I think I'd like to be able to write something that highlights the fact that everybody has a role to play in this game called diversity, equity, and inclusion and helping people to feel empowered to impact change. And so that's kind of how the idea came about. And so I just basically said, okay, I want to make it simple. It's a three-step model that's really, really simple that everyone can understand. First is assess yourself. Look at yourself internally and say, what is it that I need to do? What am I missing? What skills, what capabilities, what biases do I have? But get in touch with yourself and understand you as a person. And then second thing is look at the environment around you, whether it be your department, whether it be if you're in a school system, look at your school system, wherever you are, look at the environment around you, the organizational environment and say, okay, what's missing? What's not working here? What's getting in the way of it being a truly an inclusive environment? And then the third thing is take action. So it's not enough to assess yourself, assess the organization, have all of these great ideas in your head, but they're just things in your head if you don't take action. And so the book kind of looks at different personas too. So an individual contributor, a person who's in a DNI role, a person who's in an HR role, a senior leader in the C-suite, a first or second line manager, and also an HR person as well. It takes these personas through that model and says everyone can kind of understand what they need to be doing in order to truly be a diversity and inclusion ambassador. And I hope that it helps people it gives them a sort of a playbook and helps them to very importantly feel empowered to be able to make change. Right. That's exactly the word that came to me is empowered. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a way to empower folks no matter where they sit in the organization. You use the word ambassador. So how do you define that? And why was that your term of choice? I like ambassador because it embodies someone who not just understands the concept of diversity, equity, inclusion. So they have an intellectual curiosity or they understand it intellectually, but they are actually being proactive around marketing it, around engaging others around understanding it and getting them excited about it and turning it around and saying, okay, well, what can you do as well? And join with me. So 
an ambassador, so you know, think of a UN ambassador, entree into a country. It's taking all of those parts of it and making sure that it's not just about understanding and it's not an intellectual exercise, but you have to actively promote it. You have to actively be engaged and join the fight. And I like to say, get in the boat, grab an oar and start rowing. That's to me is the importance of being an ambassador. Mm, I love that. Get in the boat, start rowing. Everyone should read it. But what are some of the things that people should really take away from the book that they could put into action? I think when you think about taking action, and I'll just talk about the individual contributor who I would hear a lot from. Believe it or not, I hear it from every level because it was always looking up and saying, they won't, they won't, they won't. Believe it or not, I hear it from every level. But I would say, believe it or not, I hear it from every level. One, join an employee resource group. And if your company doesn't have employee resource groups, believe it or not, I hear it from every level. Bring people together that can create a network of individuals so they can talk about the challenges that they face as individuals in this community. And then what are some solutions and interventions that they can recommend? So that's one thing. Secondly, an easy thing to do is go to your manager and say, you know what? We have staff meetings if they're once a month or once a week, whatever they might be, and say, can I take just an hour during our regular staff meeting and let's have a conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, or let's go get one of the e-learning modules and have everybody do the training and then let's talk about it. Or send an article out to everybody around diversity, inclusion, have everybody read it and then facilitate a conversation about it. But get people to start talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. And when you start talking about it and you send articles out and you do different things like that, it helps to build the capability of not just you, but the people around you as well and creates that environment. So those are just a couple of things as individual contributors that you can do very easily. Another thing, if you're not comfortable going to your manager just yet, invite your colleagues into a lunch and learn. So send the article out to a bunch of colleagues and coworkers and say, hey, Everybody, bring your lunch. We're going to all get in this one conference room, bring your lunch, and then we're going to talk about this article. And that is something that easily that you can do, anybody can do, raise the consciousness of the organization. And I always tell people, because I'm always being accused of, well, Celeste, you're trying to boil the ocean. That's just too much. That's just too much. And I say, no, I'm trying to boil one or two or three people. And all I'm asking you to do is boil one or two or three people (laughs) around you. Because if they do that and keeps doing, is going to be the ripple effect. And pretty soon we will have boiled the ocean. So that's kind of how to, my method to my madness. <laughs> I love that. You know, the each one teach one, right? Yes, absolutely. Get, get someone else excited and energized around this and they're going to go do that for someone else as well. Yes, that's exactly it. Well, Celeste, there's two questions I ask every guest. So the first one is, what are one or two songs that are on your power playlist and why? One is, I love gospel music. So I love anything really by Kirk Franklin. But one of my favorites is the old one of I've Been Looking For You is one of my favorites. And then also Patti LaBelle, When You've Been Blessed. Because I think that we didn't all get here. My philosophy and my faith teaches me that we didn't all get here on our own. It was through prayers and thoughts and people sort of embracing us and helping us along the way and those that paved the way ahead of us. That's why we have an obligation to pave the way for those that are coming behind us, those generations that are coming behind us as well. So those are two of the songs. And another song that I love is uh, 
McFadden and Whitehead, ain't no stopping us now, because that's the way I feel about diversity and inclusion. Ain't no stopping us now. We're that ball that's rolling downhill that you will never be able to stop us. <laughs> I love it. The second question is, what is one book that you would recommend that has helped you thrive in business? This one. <laughs> I was going to say, besides your own book. You know that. Own book. There's one that I've used every single time that I've changed jobs, and that's the first 90 days. I love it because it's an easy playbook around how you go into a role and think about it and what you should do and plan in the first 90 days that really sets the path for you and helps you to start on a firm foundation. And it really just gets the ball rolling and helps to escalate your success in a role. So that's one of my favorites. Great. Well, thank you for that. Celeste, if people want to connect with you, learn more about you, your journey, or get the book, how can they find you? Where can they buy the book? Well, the book's available on Amazon and in Barnes and Noble and anywhere you can get a book, really. But Amazon's the easiest. Just go, go on search and put how to be a diversity and inclusion ambassador in my name, and it'll pop up there. It's available in Kindle. It's available at Audible as well. So that's one thing. But you can find me on website crwdiversity.com. That's C, Celeste, R, I'm not going to say what the R is for, W, Lauren, diversity.com. And you can go on my website and it has more information about the book, about different things that I do and just thoughts that I have and opportunities that we have. And so I love for people to connect. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And Twitter, CRW Diversity is my Twitter handle. So I love to connect with folks. Well, Celeste will include all that information in the show notes. And listeners, I encourage you to buy the book, to check out Celeste on all her different social, as well as her website. She is a wealth of information and has been there, done that, and is still doing it at a very high level. So Celeste, I thank you for your time. I appreciate your insights and looking forward to see what you do next. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you, Nikki. I appreciate it so much. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women Thriving in Business podcast. If you like this episode, share it with a friend and then join the conversation on social media and let us know what you learned or what resonated for you. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Until next week, keep thriving.